welcome to our final episode of our CCM Summer School podcast series on church heresies. My name is Deacon Matt Newsom, and I'm the campus minister at Western Carolina University. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I said, welcome to the final episode. I had originally envisioned this kind of as a 10-part series um, ending with our look at Protestantism, which we did last week. But I decided to, to go one more week and, uh, and do this bonus 11th episode so that we could take a look at, um, very briefly, just a couple of heretical um, modes of thought uh, that have uh, come up since uh, the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, um, kind of in the wake of Protestantism. Um, that, that the church in many ways is still contending with today and, and I think that affect um, a lot of people's uh, approach to, to Christianity and to religion in general. Uh, and those two, uh, those two are deism and modernism. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about those just briefly. Um, they have a little bit of a different flavor, a different character than any of the heresies that we've dealt with in the past. Um, you kind of notice a trend looking at the different heresies that the the point of difference tends to be a lot more expansive and a lot more fundamental in many ways as you proceed throughout history. And, and what I mean by that is this. The earliest heresies that we looked at, heresies like Arianism or Pelagianism, um, Nestorianism, these, these sorts of things, uh, if you go back and, and look at those, they all dealt with some fairly specific points of, of doctrine. In fact, you know, a lot of people today in our kind of a lot more pluralistic um, world where we exist side by side with Christians of all kinds of different stripes, Catholics and Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and non-denominational churches and all this and that, you know, kind of our, our, diff our attitude today is, you know, okay, we don't believe, we don't agree on, on everything that we believe. We have different ideas, but we agree on the basics. And so let's, let's kind of, you know, um, celebrate what we have in common. Um, and so we, we look back on some of the differences that these ancient, uh, heresies were, um, were discussing and we think, wow, like they were arguing about that. Like that seems like a, a pretty fine point of theology and couldn't they just agree to disagree? And, uh, and we wonder at that, but no, the, the early church fathers didn't want to agree to disagree because they understood that when it comes to these fundamental questions about our faith, you know, who is Jesus Christ? What is his relationship with God the Father? Um, who is the Holy Spirit? What is his relationship within the Trinity? What's the role that grace plays in our life? Um, you know, these, these sorts of things, it's like, there, no, there's a right and wrong answer to these questions. And in a spirit of honesty and in a spirit of truthfulness, we, we want to know that truth. This is a revealed religion given to us by God, and the truth of it matters. And so, all of these early heresies, like I said, were over these these fine points of doctrine, these very specific ideas, and you know, some of these ideas were uh, were wrong and were um, uh, against the the received teaching of the the apostolic church, um, and and then there were the right ideas, the the orthodox ideas, and we needed these debates and these controversies to uh, give us that that arena in which to 
discover the, the truth of the matter. And even though the heresies themselves are bad and, and that they are, you know, they're false, they teach falsehood, they are good in their effects in that they um, give us an, an opportunity as a church to clarify and come to a deeper understanding of the truth. And so um, the results of a lot of these heresies have been, have been just that. They've been the, the promulgation of creeds and, uh, and definite statements of belief. Um, as we kind of approach the, the end of our series, and we looked at some of the late medieval heresies, and especially when it comes to Protestantism, we find that what's being challenged is not so much a particular point of doctrine that the church then um, you know, delves into and comes to some definitive statement of belief on, but rather what's being challenged is the authority of the church itself. And then that goes to the question of the nature of the church itself. What is the church? Does the church have any authority given to her by God to, to teach us and to govern us and to guide us in the ways of God's truth? We as, as Christians believe that God has revealed himself to us. That's kind of the special tenet of our faith, that God has revealed himself to us most fully in the form of Jesus Christ. And so it only follows that there must be some place, some way for us to access that revelation today. Otherwise, the whole idea of God's revelation means it would have been limited to just a small group of people in history. But if we believe that there's um, ongoing and universal access to that revelation, there must be some place where we can find it. And God um, certainly has the ability and the power to, um, and the desire to make that revelation known and to safeguard that revelation. And we believe that he's done that in the church. And so the church has the authority needed to, to do that, to teach us truly. We can trust the church as our guide in the faith, as our teacher in the faith. Um, but these later heresies, including Protestantism, challenge that and say, no, the church doesn't have that, that authority. And if you cast into doubt or, or cast away entirely this idea of an authoritative church, then you, you really open up the door to a lot of other errors because you no longer have that guiding uh, authority of the church to say, to define for you, this is in line with the Christian belief, the Christian faith. These other ideas are not in line with that. This is what we believe. This is what we don't believe. And so the result of that um, that you see within the splintering of Protestantism is uh, a, a real wide variety of differing beliefs. Um, how many sacraments are there? Um, what's the effectiveness of the sacraments? What's necessary for salvation? Is God even a triune God or not? There are groups of Protestants that um, believe in a Unitarian God, a God who is one, um, and not a God who is three persons in one God, which, you know, is a pretty basic uh, Christian belief. Um, but there's a lot of variety there. Um, now, what we're going to look at, and I'll, I'll get to it now uh, in our, our brief little study of deism and modernism uh, today, is um, kind of a further growth of, of the nature of these heretical thoughts in that what's being challenged now is not so much the authority of the church, but just the idea of religion in general and what our approach to religion ought to be and the role that religion has, you know, plays in our lives individually as well as historically in society. Um, and, uh, and because of that, they really have the potential to, to undermine people's faith, not just in, in terms of a particular point of doctrine or even faith in the church that Christ founded, but just faith in, in Christianity and in religion in general. 
Um, and so it's important that we understand these things. So first, let's talk about deism. Um, you may be familiar with deism as the religion that was practiced by a, um, a lot of the, the prominent founding fathers of our country. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, for example, was famously uh, a deist. Um, but you might not know exactly what what it is that makes a deist regular from or different from you know a regular Christian or you know a Christian otherwise, um, because deism is not looked upon favorably by Catholics, but also not by by Protestants either. Um, some of the like Jefferson, um, for example, he was considered to be an atheist by some of the the more the leading prominent um, Protestant figures in uh, in his day and in American history because of his his deism. Now, deism is not atheism. Atheism is um, a disbelief in God. Atheism is saying, I, I believe that God does not exist. And that's different than um, agnosticism. Agnosticism is, I don't know whether or not God exists. Um, atheism is, I, I believe that God does not exist. Deism is a belief in God. It's a belief that God exists. Um, but it does not make any special claims about what we can know about God, and it, it, it disbelieves in any special revelation from God. Um, so, deism kind of arose in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries, and it had a couple of different sources that influenced it. One was um, a lot of the work that was being done by people such as, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, um, Locke, Spinoza, uh, Bacon, Descartes, you know, philosophers, scientists, um, these men all used um, human reason to uh, discover great truths. Um, and especially like the scientific discoveries of Newton and, um, and Locke's emphasis on natural law and natural rights uh, in his writings, you know, really impressed people and, and made a positive impact on society. And so you had a lot of examples in this time of kind of the, the heights to which human reason um, could, could bring us. A great exaltation of, of our natural human reason. Um, and the other source that kind of influenced deism was the, the very Protestant idea that the scriptures, the sacred scriptures, are subject to individual interpretation. Right? If you remember from, from last week's episode where we talked about Protestantism, one of the things Martin Luther did in defending his ideas about the, the nature of our, of our justification by, by faith alone um, against what the church has traditionally taught, that both faith and works are necessary for our, our justification, is um, Martin Luther appealed to the authority of Scripture. And he said that Scripture is his only authority above and beyond the authority of the church. But of course, that's problematic because Scripture cannot interpret itself. And so when you make an appeal to Scripture as your authority, really what you're doing is you're making an appeal to your interpretation of Scripture um, as the authority. And um, if you deny that the church has any special role in interpreting the Scriptures, then you open up the door for anybody. To, to read the scriptures and interpret them for themselves uh, and decide for themselves what, what to make of it. And indeed, that's what people did. Um, and uh, that's why you have so many different Protestant denominations. But the deists applied this not just to different denominations, different, different churches, but to each individual on, on an individual basis that, that everybody using the, their natural reason 
can read the scriptures and interpret them for themselves. Um, and you know, and not everything is wrong about that, right? And this is the nature of a lot of these heretical ideas: is they're they're based in some truth, they're based in some good things. So, you know, natural reason, human reason, is good, and it's a gift given to us by God, and we are called to use it. Um, and you know, the, the Catholic Church teaches that we as individuals ought to be reading the Scriptures, we ought to be learning from the Scriptures and engaging with them and using our reason to do so. Now, we should be doing this with the guidance of the church because the church does have this these special gifts by God to um, to help us to interpret the scriptures the church is our is our guide in this the scriptures themselves say that the church is a pillar and bulwark of, of truth first uh, Timothy 315 um, and uh, you know so the scriptures can't be interpreted in a vacuum but the deists took those ideas to an extreme and they they looked at those ideas, um, over and against this whole idea of, of an authoritative church or any special role that divine revelation might play in helping us to understand the scriptures and understand the faith. So it's very individualistic and, uh, and very much exalted natural reason above divine revelation. And it had, you know, several stages to this. So the first stage in deism is kind of the insistence that everybody has a natural right to determine religious truth for himself or herself. Um, it, it reduces religion in that sense to a matter of opinion. And if that's all religion is, if it's in a matter of opinion, then I have a right to my own opinion about religion and you have your right to your own opinion about religion and I don't have any right to say that you're wrong and vice versa. Um, one person's informed opinion about religion is just as good as anyone else's. And if that's true, then, you know, that means that we are expected then to tolerate all points of religious view. Um, and uh, that calls into question the whole concept of a teaching authority of the church because you're, you're removing the standard to which we are to compare our ideas. Say, well, you know, I think this about religion, you think that about religion, and, and it's all, who, you know, it's all, it's all good. Who am I to say you're wrong, you know? So we have to tolerate, you know, these different religious points of view. And again, toleration is not a, a bad thing. You know, we should tolerate one another's differences in terms of religion, you know, certainly up to a point. Um, but that doesn't mean that everyone's religious ideas are equal and that everyone's religious ideas are equally correct. Um, I can tolerate somebody being really bad at math, but that doesn't mean that I have to acknowledge that 2 plus 2 equals 5 is a true statement, right? Um, the next stage in deism is to, to cast doubts on the moral teachings of the church. Um, and, and this follows because if you've you know, done away with the idea that the church has any special authority as the purveyor of God's divine revelation to us, um, you know, and you can disagree with the church on matters of theology, well, then you're going to ask, well, why does the church have any special role in teaching us about morality? Why should I listen to the church at all when the church tells us how we ought to behave or ought not to behave? Maybe I want to behave a different way. Maybe I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And so um, the next stage in this is kind of casting into doubt all the moral teachings of the church and even the idea, eventually, that God 
even cares about how we live our lives, right? This idea that God will reward good acts and punish evil deeds, you know, that's just something that the church tells us. And why should God care? God's certainly got other things to think about. Why should he be bothered with me, right? Um, so long as I live my life peaceably and get along well with my neighbors and don't cause too much of a fuss, who cares what I do? Why should God care what I do, right? And so it's, it's very, very individualistic um, in, in its morality as well as in its theology. Um, and then the final stage of deism is this just reduction of revelation to the conclusions of natural reason. Um, or um, I shouldn't say reduction of revelation, but rather a discarding of revelation at all. It's a denial that there is such a thing as divine revelation, that God has communicated himself to us at all in any special way. Rather, the only thing that we can really know for certain about God is what our natural reason can tell us. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and that is that God exists, that, that God um, is, is necessary as the creator of all things. He's the first cause. He's the first mover that set things in motion. Um, but there's no real reason to believe in, in what Christianity teaches us, that God is three persons in one God, or that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is divine, or that you know, the Holy Spirit has been sent unto the church, and because, of course, that would give the church a special status, right? Um, but, you know, who says the Holy Spirit was sent to guide the church? Well, the church says that, right? So we don't need to believe that. Um, it, it does away with the idea of grace. It does away with the idea of sin. It does away with the idea of the inspiration of Scripture. Um, so the God that the deists are left with is a Unitarian God. He's a creator God. He's a first cause. But then beyond that, he's not really involved in human affairs at all. Uh, they likened him to a child spinning a top, right? It's the motion, the action of the child is necessary to get that top going. But then once that's been set into motion, the top just spins on its own. Um, or they liken God to a watchmaker. He creates the watch, sets it going, but then the watch just functions on its own and doesn't need any further input from, from the watchmaker. God is that way with creation. He's set things in motion, and now he's just kind of letting them play their course, and he's not really bothered in our affairs, you know, at all. Um, so deism is a way of maintaining belief in God on a philosophical, you know, basis, but effectively it doesn't really have any, any input in how you live your life. It doesn't really have any meaning um, in your life. So, uh, a couple of the most prominent uh, deist writers um, were, uh, were Voltaire and Rousseau. Um, Voltaire was very anti-clerical. He despised the clergy as, as agents of intolerance, agents of bigotry, agents of superstition. Um, he, he preached this natural religion without need for any kind of supernatural revelation. Um, he said that anybody who claims that they have access to revelation, um, they just, that just leads to intolerance and cruelty. Um, and he thought man was capable of just using his own reason to, to, to come up with um, an acceptable moral code to, to live by. We don't need any kind of influence from, from churches or organized religion. Um, he, he looked at all religious belief systems as just you know, human, um, human responses to human needs. They, they were man-made. Now, Rousseau um, agreed with Voltaire on a lot of these points. Um, he, he also rejected the church. He um, rejected the, the clergy. He rejected the idea of a supernatural revelation. Um, but 
Rousseau did have a, a great respect for the scriptures, and he um, saw a special beauty in creation. And so, for him, God wasn't just merely the first cause who kind of set things in motion, um, like a watchmaker, but God was also an artist um, who wanted to create something beautiful. And so, he, he wrote about God as a God of, of beauty and a God of love. And, uh, and actually, for that reason, Rousseau was actually considered more of a threat to Christianity than Voltaire was. The reason is that Voltaire's rejection of the faith was, was pretty obvious, and you know the thinking was that he's not going to lead many people astray, he's not going to lead many people out of the church, because um, it's, it's pretty obvious that he doesn't believe in Christianity, and his writings are not going to be attractive to Christians. Um, but Rousseau seemed to be more religious in his sentiments, and he had some, you know, some good and some lovely things to say about God that would appeal to Christians. And so he was seen as more of a threat because the, um, the threat was not as obvious. Um, and so he was condemned by, by both the Catholic Church and, and Protestants, the Calvinists in Geneva especially, uh, condemned Rousseau. Um, so those are kind of the two most prominent figures. Um, I mentioned Thomas Jefferson. Um, his, uh, he's famous for creating, you may have heard of the Jefferson Bible, and this is a good example of what I mean by deism just kind of reducing religion. Uh, he, the Jefferson Bible is Thomas Jefferson's version of the Gospels that he thought was helpful and useful, and he went through the Gospels and, and he cut out, literally cut out with a, with a pen knife, all the passages in the gospel that um, smacked of supernatural, right? That dealt with miracles, that dealt with divine revelation, that dealt with Jesus's divinity, and he left in the parts of the gospel that appealed just to you know his his human reason. And uh, so, what's left, he he published a few years before his death, and it's called the Jefferson Bible. Um, and you can read this online. Um, I think the um, uh, the the um, um, Library of Congress uh, had uh, a bunch of them printed at one point, and they were giving them away to every congressman um, who was elected uh, up until sometime in the 1950s. They, they stopped doing that, I think, because they, they ran out of that original printing. But um, it's, you know, basically Jefferson as... as um, as a, as a human being, saying, we're going to apply our natural reason to the Christian faith, do away with all this mystical stuff, do away with all this supernatural stuff, do away with all these special claims to divinity, and, and basically turn Jesus into, I don't know, like a guru, like some kind of, you know, wise folk, um, you know, uh, prophet, I guess, um, like the farm, like the farmer's almanac, you know, <laughs> you can appeal to him for, for folksy wisdom, but, but nothing supernatural at all. That's what I mean by a reductionist. And that's how a lot of people honestly view Jesus today. Um, they're, they're, they view Christianity as well. You know, Jesus was a nice guy. Jesus had a lot of wisdom. Jesus really had a lot of truth to convey, but I think the church has just made too much of it, right? Um, this whole stuff about Jesus being divine and, and all these miracle things, you know, um, the church is just going too far. I, I don't want to buy into that aspect of religion. But, you know, but when he says we have to love our neighbors and be good Samaritans and feed the hungry and yeah, that's I, we can we can buy into that. 
Um, and if you've ever heard a homily preached, um, when the reading comes up of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, right, where Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with, um, um, you know, a couple of fish and, and a few loaves of bread, um, for a while it was popular, even in the Catholic Church, to hear homilies on this where the miraculous was downplayed and the true miracle was described as a miracle of sharing. That The idea is that all the people there in the crowd really had enough food for everyone. They were just being greedy with it and Jesus inspired them to share with one another and that's why they were able to feed the large crowd, not because of an actual miracle where Jesus multiplied the, the food that was available. And of course, you know, that's not what the Gospels say at all. And that's not what the church has ever believed about this. We believe that Jesus actually performed a miracle. And that that miracle, among, along with all the other miracles that he performed, right? Raising Lazarus from the dead, restoring sight to the blind, rising from the dead himself three days after his, his crucifixion. Uh, that these miracles attested to the fact that he is divine. And as the divine son of God, he, he has access to this special revelation, this special knowledge of God's ways that he has given to us through the church. Um, and that demands a real response from us. When you reduce that down, when you get rid of the supernatural element, when you get rid of the mysterious and the miraculous, um, you reduce Jesus down to just somebody whose opinion you can give or take, right? Someone who, you know, you might like certain things that he says, but who otherwise doesn't really have any real demand on your life. Um, and that's, that's deism. So know it for what it is. Watch out for it. Um, something that's related that we'll, we'll talk about now is, is called modernism. Now, modernism is... Um, well, just the term modernism is used in all kinds of different contexts um, just to describe a, a thought or expression that is uh, seen to be particularly modern or current, right, with the times. And so if you're studying art, if you're studying music, if you're studying architecture, any of these disciplines, um, you might encounter that term modernism to describe a particular mode of, of, of expression. And sometimes that can lead to confusion if you're reading um, in church documents about you know how modernism is being condemned, and if if that's how you're 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 taking modernism to you know if that's what you take it to mean, you might think, well, man, the church has a problem with with stuff that's new. You know, the church has a problem with stuff that's current. Does that mean the church is stuck in the past? You know, stuck in the Middle Ages? And no, that's not what that means at all. When when the church uses the term modernism in, in this context, it's talking about a, a particular heresy, a particular mode of thought that started in the 19th century, um, a, a particular religious mode of thought, not modernism in, in art or architecture or music or, or anything else, right? It's talking about modernism in a religious sense. And, um, and like deism, it, it had a couple of different influences. One influence was the advancement in science that um, that we see taking place in the 19th century, and specifically the application of scientific principles to historical study. Um, unless you've studied the history of history, you might not be aware of this, but the way that we study history um, today is due in large part to um, the influence of um, of scientific advancements of the 19th century. Um, people began to apply more scientific methods to the study of, of history. Um, historians started to go back to 
primary sources, um, primary written documents, um, archaeological data, and to critically examine them and document them and, and really approach history as a science. Um, and, and that's a good thing for the study of history. Um, and, and because that was proved to be a good thing for the study of history, um, people started to apply those same sorts of techniques to the study of theology. And of course, those are those are very different disciplines, and so the two don't always, you know, transfer. Um, one of the uh, original proponents of this is a um, uh, uh, well, I'm thinking, yeah, Immanuel Kant. Um, he was uh, an influential German philosopher. Um, he lived at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. He died in 1804. Um, Kant kind of took Descartes' philosophy a little bit further. Descartes was the um, uh, the one who who said, "I think, therefore I am." Right, um, and Descartes' uh, philosophy kind of represented a, a shift in. Uh, in, in philosophical pursuits, philosophy before Descartes always kind of took it as granted that the world as we know it around us exists and is real, and that our senses, by and large, can be relied upon for information about the world. You know, yes, sometimes our senses can fail us, sometimes our eyes can play tricks on us, and, and so forth, but overall, our senses can be trusted as, um, as means of information about the world, the world around us is real. Um, but Descartes kind of shifted that center of reality to, to the self, to our self-identity. I think, therefore I am. And, and that led um, to further questioning of, well, how do we know that the world around us, that we, that we sense, that we see out there, is actually real? Maybe this is just all in our minds. Maybe this is some kind of projection. Maybe the, the real world, maybe what reality is, is something different than what our senses tell us. And Immanuel Kant, you know, took that line of, of, uh, of questioning, you know, even further. He questioned our ability to even know the truth at all. And he replaced this, this idea of an absolute unchanging truth, which is what religious dogma is, um, with the lived experience of, of individual people. All that we ever really know for, for certain is our lived experience, and, and that becomes the most important thing. All right. So you have these, these trends, right? This, this um, application of, of more rigorous scientific um, forms of, of study to the study of theology, and then philosophically this questioning of, you know, can we ever really know the truth for certain? Um, the most important thing is our lived experience. You apply both of those things together, and, and you get modernism. Um, and where this kind of is felt the most um, in, in the church, in, in academic circles, is with the introduction of what's called the historical critical method of scripture study. This was part of this modernist trend. Um, now, the historical critical method of scripture study is not, an, it's not bad in and of itself, but it was a tool that was used by modernists. Um, well, first of all, what is it? The historical critical method of studying scripture, um, it's, it's a way of studying sacred scripture that wants to apply the same sort of scientific rigors that we, you know, that have proved so helpful in the study of history 
to the study of Scripture, going back to the original sources, going back to the earliest manuscripts that we have of these texts, looking at the primitive meaning, that original meaning of the text within its historical context, and that means understanding that historical context, right, um, to help us understand the Scripture today. And, like I said, that's not a bad thing. In and of itself, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. And in recent times, Pope Benedict XVI has even written positively about the advancements of our understanding of Scripture that have been made possible by people using the historical critical method. But it also led to, um, you know, in, in many circles, in, and this is where it kind of touches on modernism, it led in many circles to a, a false distinction being drawn between what they called the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. Right? The modernists would suggest that those two things are very different. The historical Jesus, you know, the the, the man, the, the the Jewish man who was born and you know was raised in Nazareth, who died on the cross on Calvary and so forth, that historical figure, and then the Christ of faith, the the Christ that we experience as a as a as a religious people within our faith communities, that those two things are distinct, and and one is only kind of tangentially connected to the other. Um, the modernist would suggest that the historical Jesus never intended to found a church. Um, he never intended to institute any sacraments. Um, he was uh, a Jewish man who had a religious experience, um, a special religious experience, and he shared that religious experience of God with other people. And they shared their experience of Jesus' experience with others, with different communities, and that got lived out in different ways. Um, and that would then lead to the different formulations of faith, the different dogmas, the different creeds. Um, and in fact, a lot of the different heretical movements that we've talked about in this series, the modernists would say, well, those were just different expressions of this religious event that is being lived out you know, in these different Christian communities. And who's to say that one is any more right than the other? right? Because that Christ of faith is something that can change according to that individual community's experience of Jesus' original religious experience. Um, and, and, of course, that's not what the church has ever believed. That's not how the church has ever approached this, right? Jesus Christ is a historical figure in history. We, we agree on that. But the Christ of faith is that same historical Jesus. It's not our experience of Jesus. It, it really is Jesus. And so it's important to our faith to know the reality, to know the real Jesus. Okay, But... That then means that there is a real Jesus to know, right? That there's right or wrong things that we can believe about Jesus. That when you come to things like Arianism, where the church says Jesus is divine, and Arius says, no, he's not divine. Well, he's got to be one or the other, right? He either is divine or he's not divine. We can't say he's both, or it doesn't matter. It's whatever your experience of him is. Because, you know, that's... You know, one of those things has to be right, and one of them has to be wrong. They can't both be true. That's just illogical. But it's a different approach to religion, because the the way that modernists understand religion to function in in the world is 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 fundamentally different and new. Um, the way that modernists understand religion to function is 
um, you know, that, that each person, each individual person, and this goes back to that Kantian idea of, of kind of focusing on the individual lived experience, right? Each individual person experiences the world around them. Just you're alive, you're aware, you're experiencing the world around you. And at some point, you start to ask questions. Uh, and you start to ask questions about the nature of things. And you start to ask questions about the origins of things. Where did it all come from? And the origin of yourself. Where did I come from? What's my purpose and meaning here? And this, this experience that you have and these questions you have um, leads you to... Uh, they can lead you to an intuition of a higher being that exists, and that's God. And so you begin to search for God. And you have, as part of this search for God, religious experiences. And from these experiences, some people are able to construct religious systems that are useful to others in forming their own religious experiences. And that's why there's different religions in the world. Because some people have been able to, who've had such profound religious experiences that they've been able to construct belief systems and religious systems that other people find helpful in forming their own religious experiences. And Jesus, according to the modernist, had a unique religious experience. Whatever happened to him 2,000 years ago, right? And they'll, they'll call it the Jesus event. Right? Or they, they won't say, oh, he was resurrected from the dead. No, it's the Jesus event. Whatever happened to him 2,000 years ago, because they don't believe we have any sure way of knowing what that was, because all the information we have about Jesus has been filtered through these different religious communities and their experience of the Christ of faith. Right? And they, they think that that's different than the historical Jesus. But something must have happened to inspire all of that. So whatever that Jesus event was, that was a unique religious experience. And he was able to communicate that unique experience very, very well. That was his particular genius. And that gives Christianity a special pride of place. Because Jesus just had this unique religious experience and he communicated it uniquely well. And, and that's where the Christian belief system came from, right? It's the result of other communities being attracted to this idea of, of Jesus's religious experience and living out their own experience of Jesus's religious experience over and over again throughout the centuries. That's, that's Christianity according to modernism. And, of course, the major problem with this line of thinking is this divorce that it creates between the historical Jesus, who Jesus really is and was, and the Christ of faith, which is ultimately whatever it is you say that it is, right? Because if it's based on your experience of Jesus, who's to say that that's right or wrong, right? The truth is found only in your own experience. So once you separate those two out, the Christ of faith can be anything you want him to be. And, and the fact that um, he, he's different for so many different people is, is seen as a feature, not a flaw, but, you know, by the modernists. Because why shouldn't um, you know, the Christ of faith change uh, with every new circumstance, with every new generation, right? This is a sharp rejection of, of everything that the church has practiced and believed up to this point. Um, and the whole approach to religion in general up to this point. Um, you know, our, our Christian faith is rooted in a historical reality that has forever changed the world. But instead of trying to transform society and culture in light of this Christian truth, modernism seeks to change Christianity in light of the culture so that it can always be modern, always be new, 
always be quote unquote relevant and that that's why it's called modernism right because it wants the church to always be updated always be changing and new and of course for that to be the case you have to call into question everything about the church the very constitution of the church and everything that goes along with it including the sacraments including the whole idea of teaching authority and, and divine revelation and so forth and so on so pope pius x in in the beginning of the 20th century rightly called modernism the synthesis of all errors right because if you believe in modernism you literally can believe in anything there's nothing that that says you're wrong because your only arbiter of truth is your own lived experience of the faith. Um, this this modernist way of thinking, unfortunately, was fairly popular uh, in academic circles, especially among the clergy and, and in France and in England. Um, in Italy, it had more of a populist element to it because during the 19th century, there was a movement for Italian reunification. And as part of that political movement, there was a push to um, diminish church authority over secular matters in Italy. Um, and a lot of people in Italy also wanted to, along with that, um, lessen the church's authority over spiritual matters and moral matters as well, leaving people free to do their own thing, which, of course, if you subscribe to modernism, is very easy to do because it's all up to you as far as what you want to do, how you want to behave, and, and so forth. So a lot of the younger clergy in Italy were drawn towards modernism. Um, but you know, the threat that modernism presented to the church was, was very apparent, and it was thoroughly condemned by the church um, in, in two documents in the year 1907. Um, the first was a decree that was issued by the Holy Office, which is now called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But the second was a papal encyclical called um, Pascendi um, Dominici uh, Gregis, which uh, the English name for it is um, On the Doctrines of Modernists. And that's the document in which uh, Pope Pius X called modernism the synthesis of all errors. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the, the notes on our website so you can, you can read it. Um, a few years after that, in 1910, Pius X um, started making seminary visitations in Italy to make sure that this encyclical um, was being carried out um, and that modernism was not being taught. And then he, um, he also issued an oath against modernism, I'll put a link to that up as well, that all the clergy in the church were required to take um, because he wanted to weed out this modernist error um, among the, the clergy, among the church. Um, and for the most part, that was successful. Um, but there were some that, uh, rather than uh, acquiesce and, uh, and, and obey the Pope in this decree and abandon their modernist leanings, there were some that chose modernism over the church. Um, some people left the church um, and, uh, and continued to spread their modernist belief. And so you'll encounter this today. Um, even still, if you get into a field where you're studying, say, sacred scripture um, uh, in an academic way, um, you're, you're going to hit up against this historical critical method, um, which, as I said, in and of itself is not bad. It's even been praised by the church. It was praised by Pope Benedict XVI because of some of the advancements. And, but the way that it's taught a lot of times is still tinged with this more modernist um, point of view. Um, a book that I've, I've read that touches on that that I'll recommend to you. I've already mentioned this book once when uh, early on in our episode on the Gnostics, the second episode, because he talks about some of the Gnostic Gospels. 
Um, it's a book by Dr. Brant Petrie called The Case for Jesus. Um, and uh, in the introduction to this book, he talks about how, as an academic, he went to st- and as a Christian, um, he went to study sacred scripture on a graduate level. And as part of that study, you know, he was introduced to to modernism. Um, I can't recall if he actually calls it by name um, in in the book, but the things that he was taught by his professors that he cites, you know, that that we can't know for sure. Um, what the historical Jesus did or said or claimed or taught, all we, you know, because the Gospels are not reliable. The Gospels um, were, were written by these communities of faith as expressions of their experience of the Jesus event. And we have to, to kind of filter through all of that to try and figure out what we can about the historic Jesus. Right? And so all of this is, is modernism. Um, and he uh, testifies in the introduction to this book that he almost lost his faith over it. Um, but then he discovered the lie behind modernism. Um, and the, the particular thrust of his book, The Case for Jesus, is that you know, no, the Gospels are actually real, accurate accounts of the historical Jesus. And if you want to get to know the historical Jesus, read the Gospels because they're reliable and they're trustworthy. So um, his book is not difficult to read and it's very thorough and I, and I recommend it to you highly um, just uh, as a way of coming to a better appreciation about the of the Gospels and about their historical validity and their trustworthiness um, uh, just as historical documents uh, for information about Jesus, that Jesus really you know, is who the Gospels say that, that he is. And it, it's a good refutation of this modernist thought that's still out there you know, in the world. Um, but you know, the, the effects of modernism, the ramification of this is, again, just this pernicious doubt in people's mind that the church has any special claim to authority, that the church has a special status as the, the, the ones entrusted by Christ um, to safeguard his teaching and to preserve and pass on the content of divine revelation. Um, and so we see this even in the pews among Catholics today who consider themselves to be Catholics and they, they, they will agree with the church that, yeah, Jesus is a great guy, Jesus is special, Jesus is um, even the Son of God, um, and, uh, you know, and I have a special relationship with Jesus. But, you know, the church really is only useful to me to, because it provides the context that I find helpful to have my experience of Jesus. This is where I, you know, I, I feel that, um, that experience. Uh, and if somebody else belongs to a, a different church, um, you know, a Protestant church or a non-denominational church or, or whatever, if that's where they find Jesus, if that's where they have, you know, the most success and it's useful to them and having their experience of Jesus, that's just fine. Um, and if, and I don't have to agree with the church about everything. If I want to dissent from what the church teaches about contraception or about divorce or about, um, you know, anything, um, about abortion, um, you know, that's fine because the church doesn't have any special authority. There's, you know, um, I, I can disagree with that because that's not what my experience is. Um, that's, these people may not be modernists per se, but that attitude stems from this modernist mentality that we're still, um, that we're still working against. And, and even outside of the church, that, that's how a lot of people 
look upon religion today um, as uh, this, and we see this in deism as well as in modernism, this idea that religion is very subjective, that it is a matter of opinion, and that there's really no reason for believing any one person's view of religion is any more or less valid than anybody else's. The special claim of Christianity has always been its historicity, that it is rooted in a historical event, in a historical person, that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. He is the divine Son of God who has come into the world. He was born to us. He revealed to us God's truth. He revealed to us God himself. And he died for us, and he rose again from the dead to conquer death for us, and he invites us to follow him. If that's true, then everything is different. Everything is changed. And Jesus and the church that he founded really does have a special claim on us. right? And religion is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of truth. Right? That's the special claim of Christianity. If that's not true, then Christianity, not only is it just one among any other religion, right, but it's an especially pernicious religion because it does make these claims of divine truth, right? If, if it's not true, then, then Christianity is evil for making these claims because they're great lies and they're leading so many people, you know, astray. But of course, I don't believe that. I believe that Christianity is true. I believe that Jesus Christ is a real human figure. And I believe that because of the witnesses of the martyrs and the witnesses of the apostles and the witnesses of the evangelists who wrote the Gospels and the miraculous things that the saints have done and accomplished and the miraculous things that the church has done. And moreover, you know, I know that it's true because it makes sense. It's logical. It's reasonable. Um, human reason is a gift given to us by God. The deists have that right. Um, you know, human reason is capable of great things. Nothing that the church asks us to believe in terms of divine revelation is counter to reason. It's complementary to reason. And our reason can lead us to understand the truths of the faith and to have a greater appreciation of it. Um, but, uh, but not in the sense that the deists... Um, um, you know, make it where reason alone is is sufficient. Um, so, deism, modernism, two um, two heresies of the more recent past that we're still dealing with the after effects of in the world today, and that we need to be aware of as we go out and evangelize the world. Um, we need to be aware of them to inoculate ourselves against them and their influences, to recognize those influences at work in the lives of others, so that we can then better reach out to them with the truth of Christ and introduce. Our friend Jesus, the real historical Jesus, uh, to them so that they can experience him, not in a subjective way, but in a real, true, objective way in the Catholic Church. So that's it. This is the end of our, our summer school podcast series. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, I hope that you've not only learned a little bit from it, um, but I hope you've had a, a good time doing so. Um, we look forward to the start of our new school year in just a couple of weeks and, uh, and seeing you all then. God bless. Yeah. <laughs>